All right, let's open uh, to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, please. The topic, David recalls the holy oil running down on Aaron's beard when he was anointed as high priest. The title of our message, running down the hair of my chinny chin chin. Let's pray. Father, this morning, once again, uh, ancient text, but inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts today, centuries later. All we need to do is be open to it and recognize that you are our teacher. Give us uh, the ability to pay attention to that still, small voice. It's hard, Lord, in any assembly to, to really keep on track. Our minds get distracted and wander so easily. But in our heart of hearts, Lord, where you speak between the soul and the spirit, bring home the reality of your grace and mercy and love. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. I doubt most of us have ever heard of Jason Kiley, despite the fact he was 2019's U.S. national champion, or the 2019 world champion, Lucio Batista, who, by the way, is an American. They were the freestyle champions in the annual national and international beard and mustache competitions. Among thousands of competitors, their beards were voted the hairy best. (laughs) Beards are back in a big way. Procter & Gamble has publicly blamed the beard for slumping sales of its shaving products. Like everything else, beards and mustaches are a COVID-19 public health concern. I'm surprised that Governor Newsom hasn't told us to shave our beards. (laughs) However, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, They have suggestions for those with facial hair in terms of the proper wearing of your mask. It's a chart illustrating that placement with 33 styles of facial hair. I have to stop and read you a few of the beard styles they list. French fork, Garibaldi, chin strap, Balbo, Van Dyke, Hulahi, Walrus, Toothbrush, and Zappa, which I would guess would be named for Frank Zappa. You bearded guys might want to check it out. You bearded ladies too, I suppose. (laughs) I've heard of bearded ladies, haven't you? Beards can affect history. At least one beard did. According to biography.com, Abraham Lincoln's beard is now an indelible part of his image. Lincoln decided to grow out his whiskers in part thanks to some well-meaning advice from a young supporter. In 1860, 11-year-old Grace Bedell wrote Lincoln a letter that said in part, I have yet got four brothers, and part of them will vote for you anyway, but if you let your whiskers grow, I will try and get the rest of them to vote for you. You would look a great deal better, for your face is so thin. All the ladies like whiskers, and they would tease their husbands to vote for you, and then you would be president. Lincoln became our uh, nation's first fully bearded president. Following Lincoln, our 18th, 19th, and 20th presidents were also fully bearded. As far as I can tell, after them, there were presidents with only partial facial hair. I might need a fact check on this. It's a difficult thing to research. But it seems that Taft, number 27, was the last U.S. president to sport any significant facial hair. 
A bearded man is prominent in Psalm 133. Let's read it through and meet him. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Surveying the crowds of pilgrims jammed into and all around Jerusalem during one of the annual feasts, David was impressed by their good and pleasant unity as they dwelled together. The Lord was going to inspire David to turn what he beheld in that moment into a psalm. The Holy Spirit at some point whispered to David, What you are seeing, compare it to the oil running down on Aaron's beard. Compare it to the dew on Mount Hermon. Thus this precious chorus comes through time to us. Gathered together in unity is still God's blessing for his saints. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, dwelling together in unity is a sight for you to see. And number two, dwelling together in unity is a scent for you to diffuse. Let's take a look at how we can see unity. Now, I have a hard time with an abstract concept like unity. My mind just, I don't know how to grasp, grasp it really. Can't get a handle on it. I'm therefore thankful for what David did in Psalm 133. He gave us a visual presentation of unity. Have you ever given a PowerPoint presentation? You could present Psalm 133 with three main slides. One would be the 12 tribes attending a feast. Another would be the high priest anointed for his service. And another would be Mount Hermon in the background. We're going to fill it out more, but here's the nutshell version. Here's where we're headed. This is the bottom line. Israel was a diverse nation of 12 tribes spread out all over and outside the promised land. Three times annually, they were invited to journey to Jerusalem to gather together and celebrate one of the feasts. Their high priest wore a breastplate with 12 stones on it representing each of the 12 tribes. He stood in the line of Aaron as one of his descendants, anointed by the Lord to represent all of Israel. In the background was majestic Mount Hermon. If we can trust the commentators, they say this tallest of mountains was blanketed with heavy dew. The priest and the people beautifully visually depicted Israel as one man standing before the Lord. To receive his blessings poured out from heaven like the abundant morning dew on Mount Hermon. So that's the picture. David says, I want you to picture this. Israel, represented by the high priest and the 12 stones on his breastplate, surrounded by various members of the 12 tribes, standing before the Lord in a beautiful scene of unity, gathered together, being blessed by the Lord as if the dew was falling on them from Mount Hermon. We can behold unity even more than David did. We are described in the New Testament as being in Christ. We are described as being members of his one body. We are described as being stones in his earthly temple, being fit together as one building. Jesus is our greater high priest. He carries us upon his heart, proven at Calvary on the cross where he gave himself as a substitute for your sins. Our Mount Hermon isn't a place, it's a person. It's the Holy Spirit by whose living water rushing into and through our lives, we enjoy abundant spiritual blessings. So there are a lot of ways we could approach a talk about unity. Whatever else it is, or whatever else we might talk about, 
In this psalm, unity was God's people gathered together to worship the Lord as prescribed in God's word. Now, it's interesting, when you're reading the Bible for yourself, especially if you're teaching the Bible, you have to be careful not to read into it things that are not there. Uh, All of us have that problem. Nobody is above doing that because, you know, whatever you're doing out here or thinking about or whatever's happening in the world, it affects the way you think and you start to see that. You see it in God's word. And so we have to be careful not to just take a text and say, oh, this, it means this. Uh, however, it's been interesting as we've been studying through these uh, Psalms of Ascent, how much emphasis has been put on the gathering together of God's people, a thing that we're not supposed to be doing right now in any numbers, right? And so the question is, are, am I reading that into this text or is that what the text is bringing out? And I believe that the Lord directed us to this series of Psalms because it would address this issue without us having to bend and twist the scripture. It's pretty clear what David saw. David said, this is unity. This is a blessing. Priest and people and the anointing of the dew from heaven. Jesus and his saints and the anointing of heaven. And so we are talking about gathering together in his name. There's a lot of other things that go into unity, uh, and we'll talk about some of those, but that's the main idea. So verse 1, it's a song of ascents, and it's written by David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, next to the last of the psalms, or the songs, we might say, of ascent sung by the pilgrims as they would go up to Jerusalem. The spiritual unity David could visualize was something that ought to inspire the Israelites to aspire to in practice. They were one, so they ought to act like it. Here's another way of putting it. They could, if they chose to, dwell together in a relational unity with one another. They could be kind to one another, forgive one another, prefer one another. They could get along. They could and they should. Obviously, so can we, only more so. Dwelling in practical unity is good and it's pleasant. The word good can be rendered better, best, bountiful. Unity is better than, say, contention or strife. Unity is best for everyone involved. And unity's blessings are bountiful rather than meager. Dwelling in relational unity is also pleasant. It may sound selfish, but the idea here is that you experience delight rather than difficulty. You're not distracted from worshiping and serving the Lord when there is a unity. The Apostle Paul exhorted us in Ephesians chapter 4, Walk worthy of the calling in which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. So Paul says, because you're a Christian, you have been united in Christ with all other Christians. The Lord sees you as one body, one building. And then Paul says, here's the way that you hold on to that unity because you still have your flesh and the world and the devil that are trying to tear that down. Nothing the devil likes more than for the non-believer to see a church tearing itself apart. For whatever reason, finances, uh, doctrine, whatever it might be. Because we preach unity and joy and peace, and then we can't achieve it. A line from an old Larry Norman song that always comes to me. 
uh, the Beatles said, all you need is love, and then they broke up. <laughs> uh, I know it's more complicated than that. If you're a Beatles fan, don't bother me. But anyway... <laughs> No, I like the Beatles, but you know what I mean. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, so the church gets together, and it's like, yeah, we're united in Christ. We love the Lord. And then as soon as we leave, you know, we're doing whatever to, to split the church. And, uh, you know, nobody ever writes about the happy, joyful church. I remember years ago, it's really one of the, some things, you know, they stick out in your mind, they really minister to you. Years and years ago, we had Don McClure here to do a, a little weekend thing, and then he taught on Sunday mornings, one of my favorite guys in the world, one of our earliest pastors when we got saved. And uh, he said, when he was leaving, he said, it's nice to see a, just a normal church doing what they ought to be doing. Because he had dealt with so many churches that are dividing and fighting and those kinds of things. And so it's a wonderful thing. But we're, we're all prone to destroy unity because of our flesh. And so Paul says, be lowly and be gentle, be long-suffering, bear with one another in God's love to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those qualities are not exhaustive. It's as if Paul was saying, act like a Christian should act. Then reminds you of a few of the characteristics. And sometimes I think, I, mean, I know, you know, Sometimes it sounds blunt, uh, and, and I know maybe you can sugarcoat it, or, or you know maybe you're better than I am at saying it. But sometimes people just need to be told, "Act like a Christian." Are you a Christian? Then act like one. Quit whining. There's a line in a Bruce Willis movie where he goes, "Wham, wham, wham." Call the wambulance. Quit whining. Act like a Christian. That's the idea. You can do that because the Holy Spirit is in you. Dwelling together in unity is a scent for you to diffuse. When we first relocated to Hanford in 1985, we noticed the area had its own peculiar fragrances. <laughs> there was, and there still is, what I just call dairy smell, sort of a manure methane. There was seasonally garlic smell from the seed plant as you drive along the 198 entering or leaving town. I love the smell of garlic in the morning. The aerial defoliant sprayed by the crop dusters has that distinctly sickly sweet aroma of death. It kills all the leaves on the plant, but it's okay for you. It won't bother you. Same thing with, tar you know, I don't want to get into it. Anybody here in the termite business before I say this? Anybody have a termite company? I mean, they have to do it, but, you know, tenting your house and pumping it full of chemicals, uh, I don't know. It kills the termites, but I, I don't know. And then it's safe after three days? Who said? You have to wash everything and have all your food out of there, but you're okay. There's nothing residual going on there. Back to Hanford. The tap water smelled like what? Rotten eggs. Guess what? So did you after you showered. <laughs> but I used to love it when friends came for when they first, you know, we didn't ever tell them. And then they'd eventually they'd say, hey, is something wrong with your water? What are you talking about? It seems like it smells like rotten eggs. We don't smell it. The holy anointing oil had a much more aromatic scent. As it was poured upon the high priest, the fragrance would diffuse into the surrounding air. 
It is like precious oil poured upon the head of, de- of uh, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Did they really pour so much oil on Aaron's head that it ran down through his beard and onto his garments? Yeah. Another reason I'm glad we aren't in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't like that at all. Hey, now we're going to have an you know, ordination ceremony. <laughs> Grab some holy anointing oil and pour it down over your head. Aaron had a beard on the CDC chart. I'm suggesting it was a band holtz. That's identified as a beard attached at the mustache and allowed to grow freely. Think David Letterman. Have you seen him recently? He's got this humongous Santa Claus beard going on. And uh, that's probably a band holtz. There were lots of bearded Bible men. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. In fact, it's hard to find ones without beards. David had a beard. We know that because in one episode he feigned madness and it says he let spittle fall down his beard. So he he was trying to get away from some enemies and he thought if they think I'm crazy they'll exile me. They won't have anything to do with me. So he started acting crazy and spit down his beard. I do that sometimes at home. (laughs) Just for fun. You want to see? No, never mind. Ezekiel wore a beard, as we see in this passage, where God has him shave part of his hair and beard as a symbol showing the shame that would soon come upon Jerusalem. Jesus was bearded. Describing the sufferings of the Savior, Isaiah wrote, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And so we know he had a beard to pull out. Jewish men could be shamed simply by cutting their beards. This episode is from 2 Samuel. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each man, cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. So he didn't say, Shave off the other half of your face so that you don't look stupid. He said, you hang out in Jericho until your beard is fully returned. That's how serious this was to the Jews. So, should Christian men sport beards? Our answer in this New Testament age of grace is that it isn't mandatory. (laughs) Meanwhile, A.W. Tozer talked about the anointing oil in a devotional. Here's a quote. Going back into the Levitical priesthood, We discover a ritual of an anointing with a special prepared oil. Certain pungent herbs were beaten into the oil, making it fragrant and aromatic. It was unique. Israel might not use the formula for any other oil. When a priest was set apart and anointed, the oil was a vivid type of the New Testament anointing of the Holy Spirit. The holy anointing oil could only be used for the anointing of men with special ministries priests and kings and prophets. If someone went near an Old Testament priest, he would say immediately, I smell an anointed man. I smell the holy oil. The aroma, the pungency of the fragrance were there. Such an anointing could not be kept a secret. You can see the application to our own lives. And then this passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians 2 brings it home to us. Now thanks be to God who through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so we give off 
a spiritual scent or we give off a scent in a spiritual realm, in a realm that we can't see or touch or smell. So it's not how we actually smell. I smell really good today because I figured some of you would come up and sniff. <laughs> Got my Banderman beard aid on and my, you know, aftershave and my cremo deodorant and I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm a diffuser of, of actual scents. Of course, I've been sweating, so who knows what's going on there. But anyway, this is a spiritual scent that we give off that is in that arena. Bob Hoekstra, former pastor and uh, uh, counselor, he says this spiritual aroma of Christ impacts every person we meet. For those who are enjoying life in Christ, Christ's fragrance in us draws them to seek abundant measures of that life which they have already entered. This spiritual scent also influences those who do not yet know the Lord. They are dead in their sins, and this aroma makes them more aware of their deadness, more aware of their need for Christ. When this fragrance is emanating from our lives, we are not the cause. God is the active agent working in and through us to bring forth his heavenly scent. And so the idea is that uh, as a Christian, I'm so, I, I see myself as diffusing this aroma, this anointing, so that other Christians are encouraged about the Christian life. They're built up. They're excited. They, they want to serve the Lord more, not less. And if I'm around non-believers, they see that there's something more to life. There is eternal life, and then there is eternal death. Uh, not annihilation, but a, a separation from God for all eternity in a place of conscious suffering. So maybe you're here today, and you're not a Christian. You're not born again. You've never received the Lord as your Savior. We, as uh, gathered together in his name, are giving off a spiritual scent, and your heart is responding to that. The Holy Spirit is here to free your will, to receive Christ as your Savior. And so that could be going on right now, and we pray that you would come forward afterwards and give your life to the Lord. Jesus uses us as his diffusers to give off a heavenly scent that is smelled by believers and non-believers alike. As you know, fragrances are achieved by carefully mixing together certain substances. The priestly anointing oil was made from myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, cassia, and olive oil in certain proportions. They weren't to add or subtract from the recipe. Uh, that, that was the recipe. I like to add vanilla to a lot of things that don't call for vanilla because we make our own vanilla at home. Thank you very much. It's easy to do. But anyway, uh, and so Pam will say, put some vanilla in there. All right, you know. And it usually tastes really good. But you couldn't do that with the holy anointing oil. There was a specific recipe. I wonder, however, if the things we add to or subtract from our lives changes that fragrance in, uh, of, of what we're diffusing. You know, Christians sometimes add things that they consider spiritual, but which are nothing more than the flesh seeking to do the work of the Spirit. Take a whiff of legalism. Legalism is a term Christians use to describe emphasizing a system of rules and regulations for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. It's really a deadly odor. It's a stench. If you're around legalistic people, they're always telling you what you can't do and how much more spiritual they are. They usually, their whole denominations latch on to a particular doctrine, per se. They say, baptism, for example, is necessary for your salvation. If you're not baptized, you're water baptized, you're not saved. And you say, well, of course I was water baptized. And they say, well, in whose name and how? 
and then they get down to the minutiae. And they're modern-day Pharisees from the New Testament who kill rather than build up. And so legalism is... So those of you who are legalistic or if you add legalism to your life, uh, it's going to stink. Take a whiff of license. In the Bible, liberty is the freedom to do right. The Lord has set you free from sin to do good and to do right. License is your freedom to do wrong. You can still do evil things. You can still sin. Our salvation is not a license to sin. We shouldn't sin because grace abounds and God forgives us. Our salvation is a deliverance from sin. When our liberty turns to license, it first gives off an intoxicating aroma that numbs our senses, but then it turns to the stench of our flesh. And so a lot of people run around and say, oh, I have liberty in this area. I can do this, this, and this. And there are a lot of, they like to call them gray areas. They're not clearly black or white. Can a Christian dance? Sure. All right? But so many people get so into that. They say, well, I can only dance here and I got to dance at the club and I have to, you know, and, and pretty soon it's easy for your liberty to become license where you're just throwing everything out. And, uh, you know, it's intoxicating because you get sucked back into the world and then pretty soon your flesh is just stinky. Likewise, we subtract things from our walk with the Lord. Talking to God, reading his word, gathering with his people, sharing the good news. All those things are things we, all of us, overlook from time to time or, you know, fall away from. Uh, the disciplines of the Christian life, as it were. Not because we have to, but because we want to and they bless us. Uh, and so when those things are subtracted from our lives, we, you know, it's time to change the, you know, those of you who have these diffusers at home that have a scent in it, after a while the scent is gone. And you need to change that thing and get a new one going. And in our lives we need to get back to basics. So verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. 9,232 feet above sea level. The star of the Hermon Mountain Range. We noted earlier it's famous for its heavy dew. So what does dew do? Well, how would you say it? According to one source, though the Mediterranean climate of Palestine had no rainfall from May or June to December, or to September rather, it had dew. Dew was important in the summer and a supplement to rain. Zion was therefore a place of fertility which even in the rainless season had an abundance of dew like that of mighty Hermon to the north. Verses 2 and 3 are what scholars call parallelism. They make the same point using two different illustrations. Uh, and so oil runs down, dew runs down, both indicate abundant blessing from above, which would be heaven. It also communicates how potent the anointing oil was. So, it, you know, even though it ran down into at least Aaron's beard and probably there are other passages that say it went all the way to the hem of his garment, it's still only a few ounces. It's a bottle full of anointing oil. But God says that represents something as powerful as all of the collected dew on Mount Hermon. Imagine if it were possible to collect the dew on that, the heavy dew on that mountain and all the mountain range there and pour that over Aaron. That's what it's like, a a, a tiny bit of what it's like to have the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so that's what parallelism does. It says 
it says the same thing in two different ways so you can really get the gist of what's going on. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There is Jerusalem. It was and is his city. We read in Psalm 132 and we studied there, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. God commanded the blessing. That phrase encompasses the whole Old Testament revelation of God's redemption of lost humanity. He decided to give a blessing and he commanded how that was going to come, how mankind was going to be saved. To save mankind, God instituted substitutionary sacrifice. A slain animal, usually a lamb, could temporarily take your place. Sin, God told our first parents, would bring death. Someone has to die when there is sin. There's no way around it. The penalty must be paid. God said, I'll come, God in human flesh, and I'll die in your place. I'll take the penalty and I will give you my righteousness that you don't deserve. That's grace. Over time, God chose Abraham to father a new nation. Then he gave that nation a detailed system of substitutionary sacrifice. That system, obviously, was housed in Jerusalem in their temple. Then he sent Jesus, God in human flesh, to be the final lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so, in a sense, you say, hey, how do I get saved? Well, you get saved when somebody or something dies in your place. And then here's how that works out throughout the Old Testament to Jesus. And that system that was instituted, that temple worship system, it all pointed to that event, to Jesus coming and the veil being torn in the Holy of Holies so that man had immediate access to God, not limited access by the blood of an animal. Jesus accomplished what the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never do. He, it saves us. Uh, and so that's what he means by the, the blessing comes out of Jerusalem. In the future, after the resurrection and rapture of the church and after the seven-year great tribulation, Jesus will return in his second coming and he comes to Jerusalem. He's not coming to Sacramento or New York or any place like that. He's coming to Jerusalem. He rules the earth sitting on David's throne. Salvation will emanate from there in this sense. The prophet Zechariah wrote, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of lords, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And so in the end, once again, it's not that you can only get saved in Jerusalem. It's that what happens in Jerusalem uh, emanates to the whole world and the world comes there to experience it. What happens there is Jesus ruling and reigning, and you and I ruling and reigning as his co-regents, the Bible says. Any decent beard expert will tell you beard care involves washing your face and applying beard oil. So I hope you guys are up to speed on this. From the moment we're saved, Jesus is at work making us holy, and in Ephesians it says he cleanses us by the washing of water through the word. And so we're washed. And then it says he gives us the Holy Spirit, which is our anointing oil. So this is going to sound funny, but every time you see a beard, whatever type of beard or facial hair it is, mustache, goatee, patch, whatever you want to call it, you can be reminded of the grace of God. Because 
just like that beard needs to be washed and oiled, should be. Jesus washes us with the water of the word, and he gives us the oil of his Holy Spirit in abundance. When someone comes near me, or you, do they get a whiff of something spiritual? Or do we smell more like food rotting on our unkept beards? You know, sometimes you get something stuck in your teeth. I always have a hard time. Should, should I tell the person? You have broccoli coming out of your mouth, bro. In the end, I think it's better to, to tell them. I mean, because, you know, you ever get home and think, how long has that been there? Why didn't anybody tell me? That kind of a thing. But uh, I don't know why I'm off on that tangent. But anyway, so, yeah, your beard. So, you know, you, you ever seen guys, you know, that just like a big hunk of barbecue sauce that's dried here? And you know the barbecue was last Sunday night <laughs> at Triple H. And occasionally you get your tongue on, you start licking, oh, yeah. Huh. Barbecue sauce? Uh, <laughs> Mustard in the front? Got to keep that thing clean. I quoted Tozer earlier saying, if someone went near an Old Testament priest, he could immediately uh, say, I smell an anointed man. I smell the holy oil. Let's put our names in there with these changes. If someone went near me, he could say immediately, I smell what? Realistically, what would someone smell spiritually? What kind of odor do you emanate? If you don't know, ask the Lord and he'll be... Uh, gracious to tell you.